0: I'm proud that was me, and when I face it, I take back a little dignity, not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from power.
1: Hi there, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy, recovery author and blogger over at Unpickled, where I've been chronicling life after alcohol for the past oh, nearly nine years now. I tell my story there, and I hold space for your stories here. And we are into Season 8 eight. This is episode two. Happy New Year, everyone. And today's guest is someone who I have known virtually uh, through an online group for many years, six years, maybe seven. Um, But I've never actually got to hear her voice until we connected on the phone today. So I'm really thrilled that she is here to share her story. And before I introduce you, I just want to say, you know, one benefit of being in an online group, is that you get to observe the interactions of other people. And I have to say that when we first join, what we're really kind of interested in tends to be, what are other people saying? And who are the people that are kind of like me? And where can I hear my story? And as time goes on, you start to pick up on something else that's really fascinating, too, because you start to see uh, what other people say when someone is struggling and how people with more recovery uh, reach out and support anyone who's struggling. And I have been just so impressed and amazed with today's guest because I have been able to see her respond to people, encourage them through hard times hold them, hold them accountable and make herself available and even let others know when she herself is feeling vulnerable. So I've learned so much from just observing today's guest. I'm really, really excited to hear her story and, and share her with you, my friends. Uh, so today's guest is Linda. And Linda, welcome to the Bubble Hour. I'm so glad you're here. Oh, thank you so much, Jean. I'm happy to be here. It's It's really special to get to talk to you because as I've said, you know, I've just, you're one of the people who really sort of shines as a support person in that online sphere. And um, sometimes we sort of, we count on people to be there, but we forget that they have their own struggles and their own stories. So I'm really looking forward to to hearing you share today. Okay. Thank
2: you. And as I told you, it's not pretty, but um, as you said, that it may help others who, you know, feel like they don't have any hope, and you know that they can't possibly get sober. But if I can, they can.
0: That's
1: exactly right. That mm-hmm. is so true. Well, um, I want to thank you for opening up and sharing your story, even though you, like you say, you feel like it's not pretty, and and I know that that can be hard to share sometimes. So um, let's let's get to know you and and hear your story. Tell us. Tell us all about the good, the bad, and the ugly and how you got where you're at today. (laughs)
2: Okay. All right. Um, Well, um, from the beginning, the genesis, um, I grew up with uh, two alcoholic parents. Um, My mom was from Finland and um, big drinkers over in Finland, and um, my dad was Jewish, and and if you know anything about Jewish people, they love to drink. I'm, I'm Jewish now. So I can tell you, um, there's a lot of drinking going on in my synagogue. Um, So there was always parties at our house. um, But you would have thought, you know, after growing up this way, that I would have sworn it off. But I didn't. Um, I had my first drink at a Passover celebration when I was about six. And the older kids kept filling my cup and I kept drinking it. And I remember telling my dad that the floor was spinning, and he said, Oh, that's okay. You're okay. I remember that, you know. Um, and uh, there's just something that I thought, okay, this is the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be drinking along with the adults. Um, and then, like I said before, my parents always had parties, and they had this jumbo um, bottle of vodka. It's it's humorous thinking about it now because it had like an accordion pump on it. And my sister and I would lay on the floor. It's funny, you know, now, but it's not really funny. Um, And we pumped the vodka into our mouth. Here's these little eight and seven year old kids, you know, and, and we would get drunk and go hide behind the piano so that nobody could find us. And, um, and it didn't stop there Um, every year. You know, my parents had a party And my sister and I would drink. Um, Most of the time we we snuck it. You know, our parents didn't make the drinks for us. And I remember being about 13 and drunk in an older friend's car um, and yelling obscenities to the people on the street. And from there, I would get drunk in the car with my sister before school or skip school and get drunk And it actually helped me feel less inhibited because I was so shy as a little kid, and the only attention that I got was negative attention. And when I drank, I felt really uninhibited, and I could be silly and, um, you know, make people laugh. Um, This continued for as long as I can remember. Uh, As I got older, I started to put myself in pretty precarious positions i'd accept a ride home with someone i didn't know from parties i'd forget where i parked my car um i know that sounds like it's straight from a movie um i'd make out with guys when it went too far i'd stop them but what if they didn't want to stop you know what what kind of position was i putting myself in and just um I shudder every time I think about that it's like what if they wouldn't have stopped um I remember one time I got drunk with um a friend of mine we went to Virginia Beach me and um her and her brother and I don't remember what happened we got into some kind of a fight and the next thing I knew He had slashed all four of my tires, and the knife that he had was so huge. And I think about that now, and I'm thinking, what on earth was I thinking? Putting myself in that position, he could have killed me. Instead of slashing my tires, he could have killed me. And it just went on and on that I kept putting myself in that position. Um, I really knew that I had a problem but I liked drinking. When I lived in Germany, we had our beer delivered. Um, that's something that we could do. We had an account, and The beer was delivered. And it was pretty awesome. And my mom came to see me when my son was born. And she said she had never seen anyone drink that much. And I thought that was a compliment. <laughs> and I was in the Army. And I had to work one Sunday night. And after I finished, um, a fellow soldier said he would take me home. And I thought it would be okay, but it really wasn't. He insisted on stopping at a bar. And um, we drank some wine. um, And then we had some more wine. And I had a husband and a little baby at home waiting for me. I don't know what I was thinking we drank a few glasses and then we went back to his car and we made out and i freaked out and i jumped out of his car and i flagged down a taxi and i got home safely and i had to make up a story of course so i told my husband that the guy tried to rape me and my husband left the apartment and went directly to the army police And they came to the apartment and had me write a statement. And after a couple of days, I came clean and turned myself in. And I remember the female cop saying, maybe you shouldn't drink anymore. And um, I didn't even think twice about that. I'm like, she doesn't know what she's talking about. And after I got out of the Army, I drank even more. I drank during both of my pregnancies, actually, I was pretty out of control, and my husband at the time would tell me not to drink, but I would sneak it. He never outright said that I had a problem, but he really didn't like it when I drank. He knew how I could be. He knew I would flirt and say inappropriate things around his friends. And After we split up, my drinking got much worse, and so did my dating life. I would drink too much and and do stupid stuff all the time. I had a counselor at the time, and she advised me to stop drinking. And I even talked to a friend about AA, but I never went. And eventually, I decided to start a new life, and I moved my son and I to Florida. My daughter went to live with her dad in Germany, and In Florida, I continued to drink almost nightly. Sometimes I really didn't have enough money for alcohol, and I wouldn't buy it. And uh, I remember once reaching for a box of wine and then thinking maybe I was drinking too much, but that didn't last long, of course. When I met my current husband, we drank all the time. He told me I drank too much, but we didn't stop. And... I instigated a lot of fights with my husband while drinking, and a few times things got really physical. And the police actually had to get involved a couple of times. Um, anything, I'll stop right there and say that anything bad that's ever happened in my life has been alcohol related. And it's not anything that anybody's ever done to me or bad luck, it's plain, outright alcohol. That has always been in the mix And um, Anyway So um, Again A friend suggested AA And this time I went um, I don't remember if it resonated With me or not It was about 20 years ago And I remember uh, Stopping for a few weeks Just to see if I could actually stop drinking But then I went back to it And um, then my second husband and I, my husband now, we got married in 2002. And he wouldn't let me drink alcohol during the week. He controlled it for me. You know, he said, no, I don't think you should be drinking. And on the weekends, we only, we drink on the weekends. And he would regulate how much I drink. Um, he moderated for me. I protested a little, but went with it. Um, then we moved from Florida to Pittsburgh in 2006, and the table started to turn. Um, my husband became the drinker, and he wanted to drink more, and we lived in Pittsburgh, so we bar hopped quite a lot, and we also drank and drove a lot. Um, we stayed in Pittsburgh just for a year, and then we moved to Tennessee, and this is when everything went downhill. And my husband was recruited for this particular job. Nobody wanted to take this job. It was in a very impoverished area, Appalachia, Appalachia, um, whatever you want to call it, in Tennessee. Um, the salary was great, but we were in the middle of nowhere. And we had to actually drive 40 minutes to go to um, a decent grocery store, not just a mom-and-pop store, And it was a dry city, so you couldn't buy alcohol in our city. You had to actually um, go into Virginia or into North Carolina to get alcohol. And um, they were closed on Sundays, of course, and they didn't sell it in the grocery store. They were closed on Sundays, so you had to um, uh, make sure that you got it before Saturday so that you would have it for the weekend. And... um, My husband hated his job so much, and he was just drinking. It was um, just out of control. And alcoholism, as we all know, is progressive. And I'm telling you, I didn't see this coming um, This just in a matter of weeks before we actually quit. We quit together. It spiraled so out of control. Um, We both, you know, I can't say that it was all him. We both just drank so much and fought so much. And I was just so, felt so hopeless. Like, is this it? Is this how our marriage is going to end? You know, that we're drunk and we're fighting all the time. And um, so I was pretty desperate at this point. And um, so I remember one night, when I was sneaking wine to take up to bed, I did this quite a lot. I actually would um, say I was going down to get some water and I turned the water on, but I was pouring the wine at the same time. So he couldn't hear it. Um, and I would take it up to bed in a, in a glass where he couldn't see what it was. And I remember stopping at the bottom of the stairs this particular night. And I asked myself if I was too far gone, it's, I could ever stop, even if I wanted to. And I actually used to wonder a lot. I'd look up at the ceiling and I'd wonder how many times I could fill my house with the empty bottles or cans from all the years that I'd been drinking. I was just so ashamed at how much I had drank all my life. And um, the turning point, the last time that that we drank um, it was one night uh, We, and my husband's son was visiting. He's a, um, in his 40s and he hasn't talked to him since this particular night <clears throat> and we all got drunk and we drove to this restaurant. It was 30-minute drive. I mean, like I said, you know, we lived in a dry city so we had to go out of town and my husband got in a physical fight with his son at this restaurant and he ended, my husband ended up just leaving. And so he's out there in the street and, you know, um, 30 miles from our house, I've got his car. And so me and his son went back to our house and the next day, my husband called. He had evidently hitched a ride to his office in town and, and slept on the floor there, and he said he didn't remember anything that happened. And so I, I took him his car, and I said, you need to go to an AA meeting. And this is really the pot calling the kettle black. I, You know, here I am telling him to do it when I really needed it. And so... Um, he went to the AA meeting in North Carolina and I followed him and I walked in there and I sat next to him and I said, I give. I said, I can't blame this all on you. I'm a drunk too. And we never looked back. That was July 2nd, 2011. That's my story.
1: Well, that is amazing. Um, not just to, have walked in and surrendered, but to have done it together and to share your recovery date with your husband, um, I'm really curious about that. What's that been like? Does it? Do you feel like twins in a way? Do you have you sort of? Is it like you're in a horse race and one pulls ahead?
0: Or like what's that like? Is, there, is it competitive? <laughs> That's
2: an interesting question. Um, I you know, I think that. I think we're twins. I think that we're equals in this. Um, He of course thinks I'm much more advanced than he is because, well, we went to AA for like three years and it was such a chore. There was one AA meeting in our town and we knew everybody. We lived in a very small town and there was one meeting and it was once a week and we said we're not going to do that so we went to the one in North Carolina. We lived on the border of Tennessee, Virginia, and North Carolina. So we we went to that one and that was once a week and um um so we did that for about 3 years and then I started getting into you know the BFB and listening to the bubble hour and you know just doing other things service. And like you said earlier, you know, I put myself out there. I'm like on call for the holidays. You know, anybody needs me, I'm here. And, you know, just being of service and, and you know, keeping my sobriety, you know, that way. And um, he thinks I'm much more advanced than he is, but we're both sober and we're together. And I can actually talk to him about anything. For instance, we went to um, Boston a couple of weeks ago over Christmas. Um, To see Jeff, by the way. And we went into the hotel and I just froze because there was a bar right there. And I grabbed him and I said, oh, my God, this is like the first time in eight and a half years that I really want to have a drink. And he talked me down and it's like, we are, we're we're together in this. You know, he's, he's my rock. Mm
1: -hmm. You mentioned the BSB, that's that's the online group that we're both in. It stands for Booze Free Brigade. And a lot of times listeners write to me and, and ask me how to find it because they hear me talk about it with... With people on this show, and so I just want to I just want to pop in and explain what that is for any listeners who are like, what sure, sure, acronyms she rattled mm-hmm. off? Uh, and there's tons of online groups. I mean, this isn't the only one. There's there's so many, and now a lot of um, books that people might be reading, like for example, this Naked Mind. There's a a private online group for people uh, involved in This Naked Mind where they can actually, you know, interact with the author. Soberful is a really great online group. Like there's tons of online groups. And then there's also online meetings as well. So you can go to intherooms.org and observe meetings there. So I just wanted to give a little a little explanation of what that's like. I wonder a little bit about, you know, you, you said that your husband feels like he's you're more advanced than he is and I I um recently started going to 12 step meetings as well, but I only go to women's meetings. You know, I'm just really comfortable connecting with with women especially and um and I feel like there's just a lot of like open-hearted kind of talking there and I think in a way are like men are just sort of like hunters in terms of like got a problem find the solution need a shirt go to mall buy shirt right <laughs> whereas women correct. like we need to go to all the stores and we need to look at all the magazines and we need to see what's in style and i wonder if there's a, a a transference of that into recovery as well whereas men are just like got a problem great here's 12 steps work the steps and go through that and they maybe they don't need or aren't drawn to as much of the sort of language-based interaction that, that women do. Do you see that difference between the two of you?
2: I do. I really do. And um, I, I see in me the need to, to be a mom and to be a fixer. And I want to help everybody that there is to help, um, you know, on the BFB again, I'm mentioning that, um, that I just want to help them and, and tell them it's going to be okay, whereas a man you know except for our friend Jeff you know he he's you know one of he's one of a kind you know he's like a mom too <laughs> Jeff to is six, one like of the everything. legendary characters <laughs> Sorry, <Jeff>. the BFB. <laughs> <laughs> he's a
1: riot
2: he's even more um, crazy in person but
1: I want to ask a little bit, you know you you talk um and thank you for sharing you know so open heartedly about some of the low moments that you've been through and some of the places that alcohol has taken you to. Do you feel like having gone through those things allows you to be really patient with other people and be really supportive of them when they're going through, beating themselves up or feeling shame or Um, coming back from a relapse, those kinds of things. Do you feel like you're, you know, what you've overcome and what you've learned, I don't don't want to say to live with, but like the, the things that you've learned about yourself because of what you went through. Do you feel like that? uh, How do you feel that helps you help others? You know, that's a really good
2: question. Um, I haven't forgiven myself. I try really hard to forgive myself. I'm, I think about it all the time, about all the awful things I've done. I'm trying to forgive myself. And it's funny that you would say what you just said, because I'm not really good about giving people the benefit of the doubt. And I'm trying to get better at that. I mean, I'm really strong on people, you know, about what do you mean you drank? You, you had 30 days. What do you mean? You know, I'm not really good at that and I think I I need to do better. Of course I need to do better. You know, look at what I went through. Um of course I need to be more patient. No, I'm, I'm the answer to your question is no. I'm I'm not forgiving. Um I'm pretty strong on people. I guess because I don't
1: Go ahead. No, no, I'll keep going. <laughs>
2: I, I guess maybe because I don't want them to make the same mistakes or have the same pain that I have. And my daughter says it best when she says, Mom, don't rob me of my life experiences. You know? <laughs> but I, I want people to, to not go through that, to not have to hit their head so many times. You know, you know? I,
1: I really have to say that when I first um, got into um just talking with other people about recovery be it online or in person or anything i really didn't know what to say when people struggled because my sobriety was was very shame motivated um i felt really bad about where i had been i was really embarrassed to have become addicted to alcohol and i just was i was very motivated by shame, really, when I think about it, like I was motivated by counting my days, but also because I felt there was shame attached to relapsing. And mm-hmm. I really found it a lesson in when when people would post that they had relapsed or um, that they were struggling, I didn't know how to respond because Uh, I couldn't shame them, you know, (laughs) we're not not as hard on others as we are on ourselves. And I started to realize this was a bit of a fly in the ointment. If I wasn't going to talk to other people the way I talked to myself, maybe there was something wrong with how I was talking to myself. And yet it was keeping me sober. So I thought, how this is interesting. So I started paying attention to how other people responded to people who were struggling. And so in, in, Uh, And I felt like I I recall you holding people accountable and saying, you know, don't accept this of yourself. Right. Like, um, so I wonder if sometimes our words are more gentle than the thoughts behind them. Um, And I've certainly learned to very (laughs) sincerely tell people like, hey, steady the bus. That's one of my favorite things, like steady the bus. okay? you're you're wobbly, like hang on and. Like, let's get through this, but get back on, keep going. Um, And over time, I I feel like I've gotten more compassionate and in large part from learning from other people. But there really is a delicate balance to it, too, isn't there? And there there was also part of me that... um, was frustrated when people struggled because I was like, hey, I'm not relapsing. Like, I don't get to relapse. How come you get to? Or, Well, and I then after, I right, And then, then, then after while like, oh, I don't want to relapse. Like, I can yeah, if I want to. Like, we all can. I just had can. a couple
2: glasses of wine. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You don't get to do that.
1: <laughs> so oh. so there's always kind of this, like, internal, like, struggle that we have, even I think those of us that have really gotten quite sincerely Um, invested and, and honest and, and like really caring about other people and wanting to help them through their relapses, but it's really not always sunshine. And, um, I've, I've actually talked to a few other people that have like long-term recovery. I mean, longer than us and we're like almost nine years, Linda. (laughs) 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 I <laughs> know great?
0: <laughs> but women that have
1: sponsored women in the others in the program and have said like okay, how do you how do you um help people and encourage them without like getting kind of upset about it or feeling um conflicted and um one thing And I don't mean to take over your interview, but it's just such an interesting topic. So one thing I learned was that um, you can't tie their outcome to you, to yourself, whether it's, like I said, how come you get to relapse and I don't, but also to feel like, well, someone who doesn't take my advice is rejecting my sobriety, right? Is invalidating me. And um, it's just also tricky. So, um, so... uh, bringing this back to marriage and, and walking through sobriety with your spouse. Do you guys keep each other going then? Like, does, do you sort of just, just by virtue of both being sober, like, you know, you, it just helps you stay accountable or is there, um, is, is, does it feel too close for comfort sometimes. Um, no, we, we hold each other accountable. Um, he has
2: his, his issues Um, like he smoked for 50 some odd years and, um, he quit a few years ago and he says, boy, you know, sometimes he'll say, I really would like to have a cigarette. And I said, yeah, and I'd like to have a glass of wine. You want to do it? No. (laughs) And, you know, we kind of, we know it's never going to happen because we've got each other, which I, I, you know, I think it's just really great and I take it for granted that I have him and that he's sober because there's so many people out there as we speak that are struggling because they don't have that support and they have a spouse who drinks. But we just keep each other going, you know. Even yeah, if that, it's just silly really little wonderful. things like that. You know, saying, Okay, let's do this. I'll I'll do this, you do that. No, sorry. Ain't gonna happen. <laughs> It's cute. It's no. cheeky, but play it is the, kind of a nod tape, to the yeah. fact that it's a choice, right? <laughs> play the tape forward. You know, play the tape forward. All we look at our um, our apps that show how long we've been sober and how much money we've saved, and and it's like, do you really want that to go backwards?
1: You know, no, mm-hmm. no. It's just, it's just great. You mentioned that you've moved a lot. And um, I don't know, have you moved since you've gotten sober? Have you relocated?
2: Kind of, sort of. Um, we lived in Tennessee from 2007 to 2015, but we had our place here in Florida. I have a disabled son, long story short. I have a disabled son. He's severely disabled in the group home and um, here in Florida. And uh, so anytime that you try to get a hotel room in Gainesville, it, it's almost it's not going to happen. And so we bought a condo when things were pretty cheap. And so we've had this condo since 2008. So we moved in here, but we, we are moving again next week.
1: <laughs>
2: but we, um, my husband retired in 2015, and we moved in here permanently. So, yes, we have moved.
1: So here's, here's why I ask is because I wanted to ask you what impact relocating had in active addiction, if it accelerated addiction, it sounds like it did. And then I want to ask about what it's like in recovery. Um, is it a challenge in recovery to sort of have to reestablish or is it? do you feel like wherever you go, you've got a, a home in the rooms if you, if you need it or if you want it, like what, how does that compare moving around when you're in addiction versus in recovery? Well,
2: um, yes, it, it made a huge difference when we, um, when we moved. Um, well, yeah, when we, we, uh, we're still drinking and then moving Um, it it accelerated because things got harder Um, for my husband. You know, the more money you make, the harder the job is um, because they want to pay you for a good job. So his job was harder and, and life was very hard until he retired and then he wasn't stressed out and things got a little easier for us. And when we moved here permanently In 2015, it was more of a relaxed move. Um, We were already kind of established. The place was already furnished and everything. Um, So it was a relaxed move. And, and, you know, we knew that we weren't going to finish unpacking and and then have a drink. Um, Gainesville, where we live, has um, tons of meetings. Um, You can always find a meeting here. So um, that's always an option if we need it.
1: It seems to me
0: like
1: you did. Yeah. Um, Florida and California seem to be two places that have a ton of recovery support. Always. Um, Always. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you as well about um, the military um, and the sort of drinking culture. Is there a recovery culture hidden in there somewhere too? In the military? Mm Mm-hmm.
2: I don't know. Um, I've been out for 30 something years. Um, I don't know. I'm sure that there is somewhere, but it, it wasn't anything that I, you know, was looking into. I was young and, and, um, it was my right,
1: darn it, to drink. (laughs) Um, um, I guess that comes back to moving around a lot though, too, right? And having a lot of change in your life and um, that, well, my dad was in the military in uh, many years ago when he was a young man and uh, mm-hmm. and he, he uh, drank a lot. And um, at one point was given the choice, he quit drinking or he quit flying and he went to AA at, in his early twenties and and got sober and and never drank again, um, but I haven't heard of a lot of a lot of people in the military like having sort of built-in support for recovery. But I didn't know if that maybe had changed over the years no, or I not. No, I don't
2: know. That's a good question. I, I'm going to look into that. But that's a really good question. No, it wasn't something like I said in in my story. You know, there, that that um, police woman. She said maybe you should quit drinking, but she didn't say you know. There's programs for people like you. She didn't, you know, offer anything up. So I don't know. I'm sure, you know, sober is the the new cool. So
1: there's got to be something out there, you know, in it's every walk true. of life. It's, it's, so it's true. true, isn't it? Um, I also wanted to ask you about, um, you mentioned that you are Jewish. And mm-hmm. I had another guest, um last year who mentioned just briefly that she struggled at times with the 12 step program, um, as a Jewish woman, because even though, um, there's a lot of sort of room and, um, uh, even though the 12 steps like say that you can sort of insert your own religion here, like (laughs) you need, you need to have (laughs) a spiritual experience, but insert your own religion here. It really is, it really is based on Christianity in terms of the concept of having like that sort of personal connection with your higher power. Whereas Judaism is sort of more, it's less so about having that personal relationship. Am I correct in that? I think that's how I understood
0: the struggle that she had. Um,
2: um,
1: You are correct. I did
2: not convert until this past May. Um, I was born, you know, half Jewish, um, when my father passed away in 2017, I made it my mission to um, work on conversion because I wanted to be closer to him. And we, you know, had a estranged um, relationship, so I wanted to do that. So I was a Christian when I was an AA, so it was, you know, it's kind of like, you know, that's what I did.
1: <laughs> it was a fit for you then. So Yes, it was. Without you you're not using twelve step meetings at all anymore in your recovery,
2: no, no, but it's not it's just not to say that I won't go to one. I offer it to people you know I say if you want to go to a meeting, I'll go with you um i just I felt like there were some things that I didn't agree with um, you know, I just felt like I didn't well, maybe I didn't have any control over my you know, it had become unmanageable, but I didn't agree with it. You know, when I was in, in the rooms,
1: <laughs> um, have functioning. you have you found any other sort of programs or thoughts? Or we always talk about patchwork recovery on this show, and that you can change the patches. You know, it's just I feel like it's important to always sort of have some things going on or some some support system. So, what do your what sure. does your recovery support system look like today? Well, uh, besides
2: having my wonderful twin, my husband, um, <laughs> I have um, countless um, support groups on on the Internet. You know, I've got the BFB that we've been talking about, and, and She Recovers. Um, and I'm actually um, entertaining the idea of becoming a She Recovers coach. Um, so, I, you know, I'm, I'm involved with that as well. Um, not much else besides that, but I'm open ha- to anything.
1: Do you have any favorite books or resources that you always recommend to people if they ask you about recovery? Um. Well, I
2: the books that I read were not anything um, that are self-help books i read a couple of novels um regarding alcohol um i have listened to you to the bubble hour and i hear the books that you guys have talked about and i make mental notes that i do need to read those books like this open mind um and alcohol a love story is that mm-hmm. saying that right
1: Okay. That's right. Caroline so Knapp.
2: Do... <laughs> Drinking That's Drinking right. a Love
1: Story by Caroline
2: Drinking Knapp. Drinking a Love Story, yes. Thank you. Um, but there there are some good books out there. If people aren't looking for self help books, there's some books that um that are very helpful. Um this the Good House, um, and I'm trying to think of her name, who wrote that?
1: Let um, me Google it. It's Anne Yeah, I was going to say I could Google
2: it. I've got my iPad here. Um, are you Googling it, Anne? I'm Googling okay.
1: A Good House. Oh, there's a few the different ones. House. The Good House. Oh, The Good House. I'm, I am looked up the wrong one. So now I'm getting a Canadian author. and You know, I'm Canadian, so I love to promote Canadian authors. But it, the I'll one we're it. talking about, it's by <laughs> Anne Leary, The Good House, a novel That's by right. Anne Leary. Anne Leary's wife. And um, that one is. Is it Dennis Leary's Wife? Seriously?
2: Yes, absolutely.
1: (laughs) I did not know that. I read that book years ago. Did not know that. Oh, there you go. You did? Yeah. That book. And
2: then um, another one is called, it's actually not um, fiction, it's called The Tender Bar. And that one helped me out a lot, too. And you know what else helped me out? It turned out to be like mostly fraud. Um, he was on Oprah's show, James oh, something.
1: Oh, A Million Little Pieces. Yeah.
2: Yeah. That helped me out a lot. And But you have to tell yourself, if you do read this book, you have to remind yourself that he kind of, you know, dressed it up a little bit.
1: Um, so The Tender Bar, I've never heard of that one before, so I'm just That's Googling really it. And it's one. a memoir by J.R. Moringer. And mm-hmm. um and so d- is it about recovery?
2: It is. It is about recovery and he doesn't mention that he used AA. He mentions that he he just he knew he had to stop and he stopped. Um he doesn't say how he did it. He leaves it up to the imagination how he did it. So I don't know if that's a good thing or a
1: bad thing. And then the other book, um, A Million Little Pieces, uh, was by James Frey. And, um, and then it's, here's what it says on Wikipedia. So it was originally sold as a memoir, later marketed as a semi-fictional novel um, yeah. because he did, he did heighten reality he a little yes, bit.
2: He heightened it.
1: <laughs> um, and yet I've heard so many people say that that book really spoke to them and was exactly yes. their experience. So yes. uh, worth a read there, too. Um, let's come back to your story, because the other question I want to ask you comes back to your family. You mentioned about losing your dad, and I'm I'm sorry for that. I know how hard that is. Um, and I'm wondering if you have had to address one of the things in, in AA is that we work through our resentments and um, we heal ourselves by healing some of our thoughts around our story and our past. And I'm wondering, as I heard you talk about being a child who was given alcohol, um, I wonder if you have resentments about that and if you, what you learned about that and if you let that go or or how that played out for you. Um.
2: I don't really have any resentments toward my dad about that. Um, I I feel like I could have been taught a lot more than I was. My parents, they probably did the best they could, but they did a really crappy job. There were some things that they did, um, you know, that, that I am resentful for. But as far as the alcohol thing, no, I don't think I've ever really resented them for that. Um, I resent them for drinking, you know, and, and being fools and the things that they did, you know, they did some really stupid stuff, knock, knock down, drag out fights. And, um, you know, but as far as, um, uh, giving us alcohol, I don't think I've ever been, I, I should be, but I don't think I put a whole lot of, um, thought into that.
1: So, uh, th- I guess that was just me being um, uh, d- like judgmental <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and motherly, wanting to mother you. Um, oh, you know,
2: I, I try to mother the child. And I'm sorry to interrupt you, but the, no. since you said that, I do, yeah. I do spend a lot of time with myself as of late. And because, Jean, because I have had to prepare for this interview, I have dredged up some crap. Mm. and i've had to to nurture the inner child and say it's okay you know they should have been a lot nicer to you and even in the end you know my dad we he had all kinds of ailments and we tried to get him here and we had his room set up and everything at at another place at the beach you know we had a nice place set up for him and um he just couldn't leave my sister. He favored my sister and he, and it, that's the way it ended. It's like, he would rather have been with her. And so I I have resentments towards him for that. Um, You know, and I have to tell the little girl, it's, it's okay. I know he, he, he loved you. Um, He loved you in his own way, but you know, he, he liked Lydia a lot more. (laughs) You know,
1: yeah. I feel like that's one of the the hardest things about recovery is, and and the recovery not not just from um, alcohol or drugs or you know, abstinence based recovery, but mental health, and just healing in general, reconciling our past, is doing that, tending to the child, and
0: giving mm-hmm. ourselves
1: what we needed, and either didn't have by circumstance or didn't know to ask for or weren't provided for. And that's some powerful work. That's some really powerful work. And uh, I'm wondering about grief and um, how sobriety helped you move through what must have been, in light of everything you've just said, quite a complicated grief to process um, when you lost your dad. It's less
2: overwhelming now than it was. Um, it was horrible. It was really horrible because I, I knew he was sick and, you know, that things didn't look good. But I I didn't get involved. I, I regret that, you know, I, I kind of stayed away. And um, I just felt like everything he had to say was about my sister, like, oh, you should see your sister's house. Oh, your sister got a new car, this and that. And I just, I said, uh, enough, you know, enough. I can't do this anymore. And I, uh, but when he, when I found out, and I found out through Facebook, which really made it awful because my sister didn't tell me, um, a friend of mine reached out and said, I'm really sorry to hear that your dad died. And I said, oh, okay oh that's how you found out
1: your dad passed away
2: yeah oh i'm
1: so sorry
2: oh it's it's okay now it's okay now um but i feel like i'm honoring him now by you know i converted and i i go to synagogue and I'm, i'm doing the next right thing and i'm trying you know to be a good daughter that he would be proud of and um my husband says you don't need to do that, <laughs> you don't need to do that, you know he didn't treat you right, yeah, but two wrongs don't make it right but um yeah i i'm you know i'm i'm I am a mess, I really am, but i'm sober <laughs> <laughs> i'm sober and i'm'm I'm trying so hard, I really am, and i I want to help anybody who wants to to be sober. And, you know, it's not always going to be great and soft and, you know, it's work.
0: You know,
1: it it, it surprised me to hear you say that, that I really am a mess. (laughs) And yet, (laughs) um, I don't know about you, but when I was drinking, that's something I would have never said. Like, I drank to hide the mess or drank to... Relieve the pressure of of like refusing to acknowledge that there was anything messy about my life. I wanted my life to be perfect, and I wanted gold stars and accolades. And is there something freeing in able in being able to just say about yourself like, "Oh yeah, I'm imperfect and this is yeah, messy." And,
2: yeah, it is. And if you want to hang out with me, hey, come on. But you know, <laughs> other than that, you know, I'm there's nothing perfect about me. Nothing perfect at all. I have one child who is severely mentally retarded and the other child is, you know, trying to to, to beat her own demons and um and you know, that's
1: our life. So before I let you go, I, I wanna come back to shame. I wanna I wanna circle back. I mean, we're talking about the messiness of it and that. You've been in recovery for a long time now. I'm going to give you that badge, long-term recovery. We get to wear that badge. And Thank you. um yeah. <laughs> and uh, um and I I want to point out because for listeners that are in early in the early stages or even in the contemplation stage, you know, 2 weeks sounds like forever. A day, 2 mm-hmm. days was forever for me when I first started. So the idea of someone mm-hmm. being sober for years and multiple years was seemed so out of reach. And, and yet the time really flies by and there's always something to work on. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, and you mentioned that shame, you still like, you're still working on that. Let's talk a little bit about on, uh, of what you feel like someone wished me once a slow and enlightened recovery. And it just gave me permission to just take my time and just keep working on things and really never be done. So what are some things that you're kind of in the middle of working on right now? And what are some things you look forward to getting to that aren't even, you know, that you're not even able to kind of think about right now?
2: Well, um, there are a few things that come to mind. Um, I remember my father saying to me, you know, years before he passed that I was an easier child than my sister he said, you never gave me any grief. And I just looked at him and I said, dad, you have to pick me up so many times from where I was drinking because either my car wouldn't start or I have my tires flash. What are you thinking, dad? I was horrible. And, um, and I think about that a lot. I think, oh my gosh, I was just so awful to my parents. I put them through so much And I'm trying to work on forgiving myself because it's not going, it's not going to do any good to think about all the bad things that I've done. um, there are people who wouldn't accept my apologies, you know, and, and you're not supposed to force them into it.
1: (laughs) And, um. Was that a, a step I, work thing? Like to make yeah, amends to people? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, there
2: there were there were people who said, Nope, sorry, ain't gonna happen. And y- you know, you have to ex- you have to expect that. Um to the people who are going to work the steps, you have to expect that people are going to tell you, I don't wanna hear from you. And um you have to move on. You just have to. You have to try to forgive yourself and, and move on and go to the next one. But at least you're making the effort to say you're sorry. Um, I'm just, I'm really trying hard to be a better person and to be more authentic. Mm-hmm. And my word of the year is discriminating. So I am trying to be more discriminating and not trying to. Trying to win friendships with everyone—it's just not going to happen anymore. I just need to
1: to stop trying to get everybody to like me. So, is that what that word means to you? Then is to really well tell me. Tell me that's a loaded word. Tell me what that means to you. Discrimination beyond what you've just said. Yeah. To, to pick, H- how do you How do you do things. that? Mm-hmm.
2: well to not to just to you know when someone wants to to be my friend and you know do things with me, which doesn't really happen a whole lot. we're kind of like a different society now, you know we're all online um I just want to be able to decide who I want to be friends with and um, and you know make better choices, ah. Yeah. So maybe that's not the right choice of word, but maybe sounds too harsh. It sounds harsh,
1: but I I know what you mean by it. I wonder if discerning might be closer to yeah, the word maybe you mean. So.
0: <laughs> <laughs> maybe so. The
1: writer in me wants to yeah. find the exact right word for you that helps you do that. Yes. You know, a friend of mine, um Kelly Back, you probably remember her from from the online groups. And I say her full name because she's a coach and she's been on this show a number of times. But I think one thing she said on the episode that she was on is that um, she said the way that she used to find friends was, if, if you like me, then I like you, <laughs> cases, which, which I totally relate to. And, uh, and she said, you know, that's really not a great way to make friends because you just... No it's like anyone you become a shapeshifter right and as we get more authentic in ourselves um, and you're you're not willing to shapeshift to please the people around you then yeah you really do need to learn to choose to allow good people in your life that's right good Mm. people good positive people yeah yeah Well, um, as I promised you, the hour is flying by. It's gone. (laughs) (laughs) Before you go, I wonder um, if you just would offer a few words of encouragement. It's it's only January 6th as we're talking, and I know I'm seeing – on my blog, for sure, there's tons of people commenting that they're only on, you know, they're on day six or day five because they started on January 1. So knowing at this time of year that there's lots of people that are just starting out or maybe you're struggling, what what words of encouragement do you offer to oh, anyone in that position? Keep,
2: keep going, reach out. Um, you know, do better than I did read the the books that Jean mentioned <laughs> and and maybe read the books that I read too, but in go to meetings if that's what you think might help you i I totally recommend going to meetings um, in the beginning if if you need that support, I really do um, if that's something that you feel like you want to do, but please reach out and definitely reach out before you pick up that drink. Um, You are so worth it, and your family's worth it, and you can be the best self that you want to be this year and and the years to come, and it does get better. It does, and and if you feel like it's too much, like you can't quit on your own, then please seek medical help. Don't hurt yourself, and um, Mm -hmm. I'm rooting for all of you.
1: That's lovely. Thank you so much, Linda. Thank you for being here. Thank you. And listeners, we're glad you're here. Thank you for standing by this show all these years. uh, I am honored that um, stories like Linda's are a a useful tool in your toolbox and that um, the Bubble Hour is is part of, of helping people, not only as listeners, but also in sharing their stories, just like Linda did today. So thank you, Linda, and thank you, listeners, and for everyone. Um, I hope that the year is going well. Reach out if it's not, and uh, I'll be back next week. So until next time, take good care.
0: I own it. I did that, Not proud, that, that was me. And when I face I take that a little. I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free From power Weakness head on me In a dark corner Is where shame lies down Oh, you think you're strong just cause you keep it on the side It just stays and waits there Rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on You can shine When you see oh I did that Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back A little dignity I'm not a for excuse I just want to be.